Hey there, Chip Close here, host of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. I wrote a book. By now, you're probably sick of me talking about it, but I'm really proud of it. It's called The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. If you're here in the United States, you can go and get it directly from me, therestaurantmarketingmindset.com. If you are outside of the United States, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or uh, just do a quick Google search, The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. You can get it anywhere there. Really proud of this book. It looks great. It feels great. The content is great. Uh, if you want to learn more about marketing to be more uh, strategic and intentional, about the way you market your business, go check out that book. Again, the best way if you're here in the United States is to get it from me directly, therestaurantmarketingmindset.com. And don't go anywhere. Come on back. We're chatting with Chef Anthony Bucco uh, of Landmark Hospitality. He is uh, head of all things culinary. We want to talk about how growing a group like theirs uh, thinks about profit, thinks about growth, marketing, all of that and more on today's episode of Restaurant Strategy. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable business. I also work directly with restaurant owners and operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. What are the three P's? They stand for profit, process, and progress. If you have a busy restaurant, successful restaurant, but are just struggling to uh, drop a consistent, predictable amount to the bottom line, that 20% number to the bottom line, then please get in touch. Set up a free call. We'll learn more about you and your restaurant. You'll learn more about us and the program we run. Ultimately, we'll see if you're a good fit for the program. Best way to do that is visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Grab some time on the calendar. Again, it's absolutely free and we'll see where things go from there. Now, thousands of restaurants across the country use KickFin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem because, let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, is kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft. And there's never enough cash on hand to pay out tips, so managers are constantly making bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet KickFin. KickFin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time, cashless tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with KickFin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And guess what? Employees love it, so it's one of the best recruiting tools out there. Best of all, restaurants can have KickFin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds. No hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com slash demo. As always, that link is in the show notes. Now, 
Again, as I said, today we're chatting with a very special guest, Anthony Bucco, Chef Anthony Bucco. He's the Senior Vice President of Culinary at Landmark Hospitality. We're going to get into uh, growth, uh, marketing, profits, the way they think about how uh, they map out business development, all of that and more. But first, got to welcome to the show, Anthony. It's great to have you. Thank you, Chip. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Um, let's, I think a good place to start is to talk about your background, your journey, because you didn't just uh, you didn't just wake up one day and get to be in the position you're in. So uh, to give context for our listeners, talk a little bit about your trajectory. Where'd you grow up? What got you into food? How did you start that journey wandering through the dark? And how did you eventually get to where you're at now? No, it's a great question. And it's funny, sometimes I stop and wonder the same thing myself. You know, the idea of being an executive chef or, you know, even just pursuing a career in culinary wasn't something that was always on my radar. And it kind of took a little bit of, of, I guess, kind of reaching in different directions after I had gotten through high school to figure out what my ultimate path would be uh, professionally. Oddly enough, I grew up in, a, in an Italian-American household, so there's a lot of cliches here. You know, you're at the apron strings of grandma and, you know, you fall in love with food at a young age and it becomes kind of like that one theme that kind of unites every event that you have uh you know, whether it's holidays, birthdays, the like, just a regular Saturday. And, and it, it was something that was always important, you know, food being at the forefront or the center of the table for, for family events and just kind of always that, that kind of running theme. That said, you know, coming out of school, not really having much of an idea of what I wanted to be when I grew up, kind of the one thing that kind of linked uh, an interest, I guess, to both me personally and, and ultimately professionally was going off to school and learning how to cook professionally. Uh, the downside is, is when I started to kind of reach out to different places, you know, unfortunately, without professional experience at that point, there were a lot of schools that wouldn't touch you. And I didn't understand that at the time. Obviously, now I understand that there's a high attrition rate, especially when people start off, uh, you know, embarking on a career in culinary. So it makes sense that somebody wouldn't want you to kind of make an investment of money into an education and a path that may not be right for you. Uh, it was also kind of an odd time because it was pre kind of the explosion of the new American chef movement where, you know, there, I, I feel blessed in many ways that I kind of hit the timing worked out, but, but ultimately there wasn't a lot out there. It wasn't as, uh, as, as widely, I, I would say, uh, acknowledged, uh, professionally, you know, through, through multiple me media channels. So it was kind of a stab in the dark and it was something that I figured I would kind of embark on. And then frankly, I'm glad that I did. I decided to kind of go to New York restaurant school, which was uh, an interesting thing. It's defunct now. Um, it was later taken over by the art institutes and then that, that kind of went away in New York. Uh, but it was an interesting kind of baptism, if you will, into the industry and kind of gave me some familiarity of at least culinary technique and some, some basic kind of concepts and, and, and technique. And then from there it was kind of off to the races in the industry. And, and that's when it truly is, you know, that's, that's when the school really begins. And uh, I was able to kind of parlay a lot of a lot of positive kind of energy and, and, and learning and understanding from uh, an externship and really kind of turn that into something that set the path for a career. So what, kind of fun times. Yeah, for sure. It's funny you talk about I, I spent a lot of time talking about this, about food culture in America. And again, you sort of grew up in the Italian American household, which I think uh, the immigrant experience, people who are first generation or second generation, um, they have it different because uh, in many other parts of the world, food is just uh, inherent with what they do. Got good friend, uh, friends who are Indian Americans like that. Just they're ha like something's always cooking in their house. Right. Mm -hmm. So just like you got a sauce boiling, they get they get something because it's you know, it's a 12 hour cook um, for this stuff. So there's always there's always something going on. Um, 
I understand what you're saying. It's funny. My I never realized that. Uh, while I didn't have strong roots, you know, to my heritage, uh, my mom is a natural host and she just she loves to host. She loves to sort of put things together and put people together and all that. And I didn't understand that that was something that was sort of came natural to me that um, when I got into restaurants, that there was stuff that was just sort of woven into my fabric because I just watched my mom do it uh, so much that it was just uh, so it's interesting how that how that happens and the, th the experiences that we each have individually isn't what we all have culturally across the board. Um, it's funny you talk about this, uh, this like chef explosion and all of this. I mean, we're now we're celebrating the Food Network has just turned 30. I mean, literally it launched mm -hmm. April 1993. Um, and you can draw a straight line from where food culture was pre Food Network and where mm -hmm. it is now. And it's, you know, because of, yes, a couple of, you know, big celebrity chefs, but it, it just put it the forefront in a way that we never really that we really ne never had before that and and it's cool to see that you know from there you get you know Alice Waters and everything she mm -hmm. was doing there and that California movement coming over to New York and from New York it going all over the country and you can see that when Union Square Cafe opens and Gotham Bar and Grill mm -hmm. and Gramercy Tavern and you know Jonathan Waxman and the stuff that he was doing at Jams and then eventually mm -hmm. you know Barbudo all of that really can draw a straight line from when the food mark uh from when the food network launched uh to where we are now did you do you feel that do you feel when you talk about like it, you didn't have access to it when you were sort of coming into it now there are kids that they can't say that it's everywhere food culture is everywhere it's it's amazing to me to kind of see this growth and evolution and and again like i say i was kind of in my infancy in my career and and being a part of watching you know the those those true forefathers of the american chef movement and it tied into a lot of things that were were kind of special. You know, we got to really highlight the farm and and the ingredients and the reason that, you know, we're able to have such a great, you know, structured, I, I guess the best way for me to define it, you know, is, is this American movement for food. Mm -hmm. You know, historically, we've obviously been a melting pot. We draw from multiple influences. And I think that that's a, a, another value add. But when it comes down to how healthy, you know, our food system can be, uh, uh, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And and the ingredients that we have access to and exposure to, I think really started to set the tone for where we as chefs, as culinarians could really take, you know, what, what's going on in this country and really kind of kind of capitalize in, in a way that like, you know, not only is it about what's going on in the kitchen, but it's also about what's happening back on the farm and, and you know, in our, in our ranches and in our fisheries. And I think it's an exciting time. And, and you got to see like, you know, I was able to, I was working for a chef by the name of Michelle Nishan at the time who, you know, for many, you know, in many ways was kind of like that pre stone barn kind of Northeast seasonal, yep. uh, local, um, impactful and, and really kind of focused on the small family farm. Cause that's where he grew up yep. in the Midwest. And it was like, you know, you started to kind of get an understanding that, yeah, there's a great heirloom tomato, but there's also an equally great story about it and how all of those things come together to kind of complete the hospitality circle. It's one thing to be able to perform and, and, and execute at a high level. It's another to connect with guests. And the connection to guests comes on a lot of different and in many different ways. And I think, you know, in this case, we were able to kind of not only show them a technique, we were able to show them local and seasonal, but we were also able to complete that with a story. And at some point, you find that every guest has kind of that one thing that kind of connects them to the concept, uh, to the chef, to the, to the restaurant. And, uh, you know, again, that's, that was just kind of a way to kind of, for me to kind of learn the importance of, of the full circle aspect. It's one thing to be able to cook. It's another thing to be able to connect and hospitality is really what drives this industry. 
And it takes a little while sometimes because, you know, when you're in the kitchen, it's about the vinaigrette. It's about the sauce not breaking. It's about (laughs) making sure that we're maximizing yield on our proteins when we're butchering. But really what it comes down to is a simple engagement with people. And, uh, you know, that's been kind of a common theme throughout my life and my career. And I think that's the one thing that I, you know, I love to kind of connect all the dots with. You know, it's really interesting, and uh, this came up in an interview I, I did just a couple of months ago with a guy named Ola Sars, and we were talking about music, and we were talking about atmosphere, aesthetics, environment, and one of the things we talked about on that, I said, isn't it funny how much attention we put into the beverage program or the food or the technique or the, the you know, the complement of flavors and stuff like that? It's amazing how much attention we put into that given how little the average diner knows about any of that and things that they know much more about, like the lighting, like the music, like, is this chair comfortable to sit in? Or did the person look me in the eye when they said, hi, good evening, welcome. We know people. We know how people make us feel, good, bad, or otherwise. We know when a space is comfortable to sit in. We know when a chair is comfortable on our butts. And what we don't know about is uh, is how to break a sauce or how to keep a sauce or what that does to a dish or what, you know, any of these other things. And I've had the fortune of working in this industry for a very long time. And so I've I've learned perhaps more than most. And, and I sort of say this a lot. I say I've been doing this for a while, right? 24 years or so, not including, you know, folding pizza boxes when I was in high school. I don't count that. But when I was in college, I waited tables all through college and, and sort of beyond that. Okay, that's that's what I count as part of my uh, my culinary career. I've been around this a lot, and I know more than most, and I certainly don't know enough to really be able to, to talk about this. What I can talk to you about is the lighting and the sound and the comfort mm-hmm. and the sort of the attitude of the energy of the server. I find that really interesting, right? That's I think I think we're going to come back to that. I think... We've sort of gone very heavy on the culinary. I mean, even this whole craft mm-hmm. cocktail movement over the last 10 years. It's like most people don't know anything about anything. They know if it tastes good and if it sort of, you know, loosens them up after a long week of, of work. Amazing, isn't it? I had an opportunity uh, with Landmark Hospitality, oddly enough, and it was back in 2011, 12. And uh, Frank Rotella and Jeannie had reached out to me in reference to them taking over and reopening the Ryland Inn. So here I am. And again, as a young, I spent a lot of my early years in New York City, but coming back to the to the state side, I had some great opportunities and some chances to grow into the executive chef role on this side of the river. Uh, And, you know, obviously the idea of of being able to kind of come and reopen the Ryland Inn after it's after it's, uh, you know, untimely closing, uh, you know, with an iconic chef and an iconic restaurant and something that had national relevance. You know, Craig Shelton was on the cover of Gourmet Magazine, multiple James Beard Awards. So now I'm being hand-selected to kind of take this and, and reopen its next iteration. And oddly enough, I was there through the, the construction, the demo, and all the rebirth and, and growth of it. And I would sit in an empty building in the middle of Hunterdon County on a quiet road. Route 22 is not that quiet, so apologies there. But, you know, the reality <laughs> is, is there was always, you know, in any course of a week, I'd see four or five people who would actually take the ride up the driveway and see what was going on. And I had this idea of what drew people to the Ryland. And it was always about the food and the beverage culture and this, you know, all this, you know, setting the stage for what a Relais Chateau property would be like and, you know, all these things. Everyone who pulled up and would talk to me had really no recollection or idea of what they had eaten or drank. All they knew is they were there and they had a great time. Yep. They were celebrating or they weren't, you know, it was after work. But the reality is, is there was something that brought them back. 
And it had less to do with anything and more to do with the fact that there was a level of comfort, trust, um, you know, that was established by them making that, that, that drive up and, and sharing time and breaking bread with friends. And it was just amazing to me that, you know, we put a lot of stock in, into what you just said, the beverage program, the food program, making sure that we're cool, unique. You know, those Instagram photos are just perfect and, and, and everything is, is kind of in, in line with what we, we believe the vision of the concept and the property should be when at the end of the day, it really comes down to creating an environment that people can feel nurtured, that people feel respected, that there's this, this, this comfort that proceeds and, and really kind of helps tell your story. And, and I think that's quantified by everything you just mentioned. It's the right lighting. It's the right sound. It's the right temperature. It's, it's everything that kind of comes together to make an experience valued. And I think that's one of the areas that, you know, you really, it takes a little while in, in this industry to realize that there are certain things that people are attracted to. And, and those are really, sometimes they're more important, uh, oddly enough, than, than what we really put a lot of stock in. Yeah, it's interesting. I opened a Reliant Chateau property, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago at this point. And when you go through that process, because the um, uh, getting the Reliant Chateau uh, award or the acknowledgement, um, it's such an important accolade. And yes, it's it's luxury. Yes, it's a certain level of amenities and all that. But you said the word comfort, and that's really what they are most interested in, is that are, are we making, uh, are we providing as much comfort as possible? And that goes, I mean, all the, the different things, all the different things you've got to do um, to get that demarcation. It, it's just so interesting is that they care less about the what and they really care about the how. How do you make the people feel? Uh, which really struck me. I didn't realize that when uh, the people that I was working for said, we really want to go, go for this. And I said, okay, it's, I mean, it's it's really not easy. And they said, no, we know. I mean, there's only a couple of dozen here in the United States um, mm -hmm. of hotels, of inns that can have that, uh, that accolade. I said, okay. And then the further we went in there, I just said, oh, this is easier than I thought because you just have to say, how can we make it better? How can we make it more comfortable? How can we make mm -hmm. this more welcoming, more hospitable? And you start doing that and it just you just look at everything. You look at the door, you look at the driveway, you look at the valet, you look at the room, mm -hmm. you look at the TV and you say, how can we make this better? How can we make this better? And then that's a very easy question to ask and you don't have to wonder what question you should be asking. It's always that question over and over and over again. I want and to, that becomes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You said that that becomes sort of like your mantra, right? That's agreed. It becomes consuming and it becomes everything. But more importantly, it becomes really, I think, what starts to define us as professionals. Yeah. It's funny. The very first guy I ever worked for, the first job I got in New York City was Steve Hansen. I worked at Be Our Guest restaurants. Got it. And at the time, so you know, I mean, anybody who's got that on their resume. Um, mm -hmm. And he was a very difficult guy to work for. Um, ultimately, not a um, not a good energy in the place. But man, there's so much I learned from him and that company. I am not the first person to say any of these things. But what he really did care about, and I, and I had to the fortune of opening a couple of properties for the company, man, he would come in and he was maniacal about sitting in every single seat. He's like, lay out the tables and every single seat. And he would say, this is what the, my next two hours, I'm looking at that. What do we have to do over there then to figure? He's like, we, the next two hours of this guest's night is spent looking at that. And it was either okay or it wasn't okay. And he did that for every single seat. And he said, great. How do they get to the bathroom? What are they going to have to pass? What are they? And it, it helped define 
where they, you know, they'd move doorways, right? Nope, they're going to have to walk past the barista station. Nobody wants to, you know, splash coffee when a barista is trying to get coffee to a table quickly so that they can make their their show. And they're going to run into some woman and, you know, he's like, uh uh-uh. I mean, literally knocking down walls, put the barista station on the other side. You know, same Mm -hmm. room, just going to exit through the other way. Um, He was maniacal about that kind of thing, even up until the just about the last minute of any new opening, which was cool. It taught me a certain way about, hey, how do we how do we treat our guests and how do we think about the way we treat our guests? He tells her everything. Yeah. So use that because I want to bring this back to Landmark, to what you guys Mm -hmm. are all about. Talk to me about some of the projects that you guys have going on. Talk to me about how, as a company, you guys think about everything that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. No, and listen, I mean, there's a lot lot to unpack there. And I think we'll kind of start with the fact that, you know, Landmark over, over its 23-odd, you know, plus years of existence has kind of iterated multiple times. You know, thinking about, like, you know, the starts of, of Landmark comes back to Liberty House in Jersey City. You know, and if you think about Jersey City at the time that they opened that, that, that beautiful restaurant, event space, you know, the reality is, is Jersey City is a completely different market than it was back then. That's right. You know, and then from there, kind of, you know, parlaying into different communities in, in the state and beyond its border, I think it's kind of important for us to kind of come back to the one singular connection. You know, for us to be successful in the, in the communities that we're servicing, we have to be able to connect to the communities we're servicing. And I think, you know, in the beginning, it was a little bit easier because, you know, times have changed. You know, social media started to kind of transform uh, in two ways. One, I think, uh, very positive. You can make an immediate impact where it used to be more of that grassroots kind of poor world marketing where, you know, you're kind of filling your restaurant organically. Today, you've got a little bit more of an opportunity to kind of go out there and make a bigger statement. But it really comes down to another thing that I think we've really started to focus on and we've always focused on is creating the narrative. And really trying to figure out how we can kind of position what what and how we're approaching our guests and kind of help kind of use that story to kind of fill our, our dining rooms and our event spaces and more importantly, create that connection. You know, recently we've we've pivoted off of Liberty House and we've moved uh, into a new direction and we're, we're operating under Maddie Rose. So that's about a three month old concept that we've kind of launched within kind of our our our, our flagship property. And, you know, that's that's a big project for us for a lot of reasons. Number one, we're looking at the value that that brings to the market. We're looking at the value that, you know, us kind of reinventing who we are, appealing to a new audience, really kind of capturing a different demographic. Because like I said, Jersey City has continued to has continued to evolve over the last 20 some odd years. And for us, it's important to kind of match that evolution and really kind of reiterate and try to put something forward that that people can kind of connect to. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun, you know. Yeah, we and I want to interrupt you really quick, just for yeah, all the uh, listeners here, because we have listeners all over the country, really all over the world. So, I live here in the New Jersey suburbs, just outside of New York uh, City. Anthony uh, lives also in New Jersey. Landmark Hospitality mainly has all these restaurants across um, New Jersey, sort of higher end, upscale events, uh, event. Uh, rooms, event uh, spaces, and then uh, full-service restaurants. And Jersey City, for those of you who don't know, is just across the Hudson from New York City. It's now lovingly called, right, there are five boroughs in New York City. It's uh, lovingly called the sixth borough because it is just as easy to get across the Hudson River. Uh, And a lot of people live in Jersey City, and the next town right next to it is Hoboken. And Jersey City, Hoboken was sort of the, the cool big brother, uh, it's one square mile. It's very affluent. And Jersey City is just to the south of that. And there are some affluent areas. But 23 years ago, um, it was not. What's happened over the course of the last two decades 
as it has grown. Hoboken is pushed down further south, and Jersey City keeps um, uh, getting cooler and um, gentrifying and and all of that, and watching that sort of spread. So when he's talking about the evolution of a, of an area, of a market, of a neighborhood, um, that is very obvious to see in the home values, in uh, sort of everything that's happened in Jersey City. So when he's talking about Jersey City, to give you a little context, I mean, you can see the the city. It's a great view of the skyline from right across the river, probably the best view of the skyline uh, anywhere up and down the river. No, I, I think you said it perfectly, Chip. I think, you know, the one the one area that we've we've probably had the most success in for obvious reasons, because it was our first is Jersey City. And, you know, now we're three projects deep in that in that community. And, you know, we we've had the luxury of of really servicing people for decades now. And I think we've started to kind of understand that market. And it's funny, it's like once you get to that point, you realize you have to reiterate, you have to start over, you have to reconnect. And and I think the Rose concept has given us an opportunity to do that. And then going south, uh, you know, down down the Hudson, we're able to kind of do the same thing at Hudson House, which now we have a Felina steak. So we started this concept in Ridgewood about four years ago, and uh, it really kind of captured a lot of attention and, and you know some good notoriety. And we realized that you know traditionally Landmark has never kind of looked at something as as uh, how should I say this with with the intent on duplicating, with the intent on on kind of scaling. And uh, in this case, we realized, you know, we, we've got something here that has kind of really kind of found its footing in, in a strong way in Burden County. And why not kind of see what we can do in another part of the state? And, you know, the first kind of uh, separation of, of, of Felina and Ridgewood came in Newark Airport. We signed a, a management deal there to do a restaurant in Terminal A. And now we've moved that kind of same kind of concept beneath those down to Jersey City, where we're actually performing quite well at, at Hudson House. Uh, which is in Port Liberté. So again, another one of those kind of super amazing neighborhoods that make up Jersey City's dynamic kind of yep. culture and just diversity. So we're, we're proud to be there. And, you know, again, it's like, you know, the sky's the limit for some of these concepts, as long as we can continue to show, obviously, the connection to our guests and, and, and you know, growth in a, in a strategic and smart fashion. So I want to talk to you because you, uh, so you're, you head up culinary, you are behind mm-hmm. the scenes and, control and oversee all of these different properties. Two things that I'm uh, uh, ultimately focused on, on this podcast and in the work I do with the members of my mastermind when I coach with them, profit and growth. And for me, profit is op- uh, operations and growth is marketing. Um, so I want to understand how you, maybe you personally, or how you guys uh, as an organization think first about profitability. How do you target profitability? Or is there a specific number that you guys do target for operating, in, you know, net operating income, let's say? And how do you guys go after that? What are the safeguards? What are the systems in place? Um, if you could share a little bit of, of how you approach that and how you execute that. Uh, we'll start there and then we'll sort of go from go out from there. No, I, I, I listen. These are these are great opportunities to kind of discuss successes. And I can tell you, like, you know, for us and, and I mean this, I think. The strength of what Landmark Hospitality has been able to really do in our performance is 100% to me. Uh, you know, we are, we are. I guess the best way for me to say this is our events and, and catering aspects of our venues has really been kind of probably the most impactful on that bottom line. You know, when I think about kind of our successes, you know, at the bottom line, that's really where they're coming from is our ability to do these high-end events and really kind of capture margin. But ultimately, I think as operators, we look at the opposite. We look at the top line and we look at our ability to kind of not only kind of grow our business models, but ultimately really 
further and, and promote our, our sales performance year over year, you know, and that comes down to marketing. And I think that's the single, the single, you know, strongest kind of facet of this company. You know, we have an agency within our company we call PyLabs and PyLabs is essentially kind of the marketing engine that drives Lamar Hospitality. And we treat it as kind of, you know, that, that, that client, you know, relationship where they kind of work for us in, in, in a strange, awkward way, even though they're mm -hmm. kind of housed within the company. But ultimately, we utilize them to kind of do all of our creation of assets, whether it's website, whether it's, you know, Google AdWords, whether it's, you know, you name it, direct mailers, you know, the email campaigns and, and the like. I think it's important for us to kind of look at that as a way to kind of drive our top line and kind of reinvent and kind of recapture and, and reposition our, our brand across the board. You know, the bottom line tends to kind of hit its, uh, its, its, its levels when you have the top line revenues that are, that are supporting it. Um, and like I say, especially with us having the luxury of about 70% of our revenues coming in via the catering aspects of our venues. And honestly, you know, when you think about price per person and you think about a lot of the different things that kind of make up those events, it's, I'm not saying it's easy to hit, hit costs, but it does keep everything in line and does give us the opportunity to not only expand as a company, but also kind of expand within the context of each individual venue. So, and in many ways that's, sorry. Yeah. 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 No. So then let's drill down a little bit there. So I, yeah, I mean, 70% of your revenue coming from private dining and catering. Talk to me about how you. I mean, that was sort of the ethos. That was sort of the foundation mm -hmm. of the company. The restaurants Correct. sort of spun out from there, right? But mm -hmm. it's continued to be the majority of your efforts. So, so talk to me about how you think of specifically profitability. And I mean, you can charge more. You can make better margins on private dining because you charge for the luxury of having the space to yourself, right? The, the luxury. I mean, how do you guys think about that when you come to pricing it and costing out things? Well, again, everything comes down to comp set, you know, and the one thing in, in the Northeast is weddings are a very big business and it's very important to kind of create the, the stage, if you will, to kind of deliver on those experiences. And for us, it's about making sure that we are paying attention to what's not only relevant in our, in, in our obviously in that particular category, but more importantly, that we're looking left and right at what our comp set's doing. Uh, you know, both kind of in the Northeast and, and there's, there's some strong suits in this country where you see, you know, heavy, heavy, good price points for, for events and catering places like California, Texas. So we really do try to pay attention to what's going on in a national scope in addition to more regional and local. Uh, to that point, you know, we recognize that it's one thing to have a price point, but it's another to deliver on the experience. There's perception reality even on that side. And the market is becoming a lot more discerning and they have expectations. And I think for us, it's about adapting and modifying our spaces to kind of match what, what the guest expectation is. You know, today we have, uh, you know, we, we've been moving into a different look and feel to some of our venues. Some of them are, you know, more urban set. Some of them are more, you know, like the project we're doing in Elkins Park. It's an old historic mansion. And, you know, we see there's an incredible following for that. What we're, what we're starting to understand is, is like, you know, there are brides and, and grooms and, and the like out there that are looking to kind of take those and make those experiences more personal. So in the days where, you know, the personalized, personalized touches came down to flowers and music, today what you're seeing is, is like you have this beautiful mansion that's a footprint for family photos. It's almost like you're recreating a home that's yours and the connection there, and that's what's really drawing people in. So we're seeing modified behaviors across the board, and I think it's important for us to also not only match, you know, again, it's margins important, but it's not what really dominates and drives our decisions. And, you know, again, even from a guest standpoint at an event, you know, the days where it's like a filet mashed potatoes and some baby carrots are gone. You know, I mean, we're yeah. shaving black truffles, we're shaving white truffles, you know, there's caviar service, there's, you know, the bells and whistles that people associate with high end dining, 
I'm finding we have more of a, of a market for that on our event side than we do in even our restaurants, which it's is kind of funny a, and unique. Not just a one big meal a, a year. It's a once in a lifetime event. So let's Correct. do it. With yeah. the bells and whistles to match. Yeah, you know? that's what I mean. I mean it's, it's a, well, if we're only going to do this once, let's, let's really do it. I think it's a really good point. Talk to me. So, and I, and I, and I understand that. Um, the reason I ask, I, I've been trying to ask more and more operators that I have on. The reason I ask about profitability is because the majority of the audience who listen to this show are independent operators. And mm-hmm. the data is really clear, right? The average, uh, the average independent restaurant in this country will never make more than about 6% profit margin. Uh, I was Correct. even taught coming into the industry, the 10% is the land of fairies and unicorns. Um, and I just discovered that that is not true and that should not be true. We work way too hard. What we do is too important. Um, the, the way we serve communities, provide jobs for communities, all of that, just, just no, there's just no way. <laughs> the average, average restaurant in, in this country is, between, is right around $1.5 million a year. To make 6% mm-hmm. on that for as hard as we work, it's just I do, not, um, I do not buy that. So that's why I'm ultimately really interested in that. And I'm trying to ask more and more people the way they think about that. Um, mm-hmm. That's why well, I want to dig in there. No, listen, I mean, I think the first the first executive chef position that I had in New Jersey was a small restaurant and not a small restaurant. It was a midsize, high end, uh, fine dining, if you will, restaurant in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I walked in there and again, I didn't have a lot of frame of reference for financials. It was something that I went in there and I cooked. And, you know, if I had hit a 25% food cost, I'd take my invoices and multiply by four and that's how I hit it, you know, and there wasn't a lot of, (laughs) and and I joke and it's tongue in cheek, but, you know, ultimately my responsibility up to that point was never about margins or business. It was 100% about making sure that the food that was coming out of the kitchen matched whatever pedigree or expectation that I had for myself. And then more importantly, not only did the owners have for me, but also the guests. And, you know, our financial goals there were were pretty straightforward, 29% food cost, 21% labor. We opened a second restaurant, which was literally right above, and it was more of a comfort, um, kind of like a workhorse restaurant. Like you could go there three times a week and go there five times a month. And it was something at the price point supported that the expectation of service and goods was high, but at the same time, it was reasonable. And it was something that became kind of like a, another one of those, like, you know, where are we going tonight? Let's head to Captain Lombardi, yep. uh, where stage left was a little bit more of a focus, like, okay, we're going here for a birthday anniversary work event, whatever the case may be. But that restaurant was completely different. We used 50% as kind of like, you know, our, our cost target from a culinary standpoint. And in that instance, it was almost reversed. We looked at, you know, our costs would be much lower uh, on, on food, but our labor would be much higher because of the intensity of prep and obviously the repetition of, of people coming in and the volume we were doing. And it was interesting back then because that was kind of like my first, uh, the first financials that I was accountable for. And the numbers that you just said were pretty much right in line. You know, in a great year, we keep 8% of the bottom line, you know, yeah. and, and, and of, that, of that number. And, you know, it was, it was tough and it's, it's a labor of love and, and, you know, it's a grind and, and you start to realize that, you know, it's not easy. Uh, to make money off of a restaurant. And I can feel for, for a lot of people who are out there. And that's why you've seen a lot of impactful owners start to diversify their offering and open more and more. And again, it's like, you know, taking 8% off of this and 8% off of this and 8% off of that. At some time, it starts to make sense that what you're putting into the industry and what you're pulling out are at least somewhat, you know, in keeping with, with what the real cost is. Yep. And, and that's something like for us with the event spaces, the one thing it does give us the luxury of is, is, you know, I don't want to upset anybody by saying it, but it's like, we are able to kind of have impactful flow through to the, you know, 
to ultimately in terms of profit. And I think that that's something that has given us the ability to continue to grow and also has become a focus of our, of our vision and our plan. You know, a la carte restaurants are great because what a la carte restaurants do is they give you the credibility to set pricing for events. So it's almost like there is a harmonious and synergistic relationship between the two. But ultimately, the real success really flows through those, you know, those event spaces for us. The busiest time of year is coming. The question is, is your staff ready for the holiday rush? This year, give your team the gift of Pop Menu AI Answering, a simple solution for phones ringing off the hook. AI Answering handles calls every day of the year so your staff can focus on in-person guests. Customize your greetings and responses, answer common questions. You can promote specials and events and send follow-up links to ordering and reservations. AI Answering handles it all while escalating more complex conversations back to your team. Never miss another tasty revenue opportunity. PopMenu, the marketing technology platform designed to make your growing restaurant easy. Discover more AI restaurant tools that turn your to-do list into an already done list by requesting a demo today. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month. Plus, you get to lock in one flat, unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. Go now to get $100 off your first month again at popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. And yes, that link is in the show notes. And I, I love that you're saying that. It's one of the, it's the power of sort of what you guys bring to it and why I wanted to have this conversation and why I thought this mm -hmm. would be a good one to have. I, I hear you. I, I mean, we used to, <laughs> I worked at a place in Midtown Manhattan and the price per head was, I don't know, a hundred, hundred and $110 a head. I worked there in 2009, uh, in the private event space, the, um, the price per head started at 155. Mm -hmm. Same food, actually much more mm -hmm. limited menu, but you paid for the luxury of having the private room all to yourself. And right. Ultimately, that was like it just that made our night every single night, uh, made the waiters nights. It made because what they were able to generate off of 18 covers in the private dining room at 155 ahead for the food, not including the wine. It was just mm -hmm. it was a it was a meaningful number. And ultimately, it kept that place afloat uh, probably long after it should have um, it should have closed. If we can, I want to switch now to mm -hmm. profitability. And I like that you're bringing up sort of. Catering, private dining has been your path to profitability um, because ultimately um, you do covers in bunches and you can charge more than you otherwise could have because you're paying for the experience or you're charging for the experience, the exclusivity, the the sort of the premium uh, opportunity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So then talk to me about growth, about the marketing side of things, because you said a minute ago um, that that's really what you see. We keep driving top line revenue that's sort of going to make the numbers work out at the bottom. So talk to me about how you guys think about uh, marketing, either through the agency or how you guys approach it. Well, listen, I mean, the one thing that we have is the luxury of having now, you know, I think we're, we're 14 and growing in terms of venues. We have history. So, you know, the and this is funny and not to go off on a tangent, but the one thing I've always said, and I've done quite an, a lot of openings, you know, both kind of in the New Jersey market and outside the New Jersey market, but the reality is, is that I say this all the time. The one thing I wish we had was five years of history, because then we could figure out, you know, when chairs are full, where we have to kind of target and different opportunities. The one thing that comes hand in hand with having an incredible amount of catering and, and obviously in-house, you know, special event businesses, we are able to start to really build out a really strong CRM. So we are able to kind of start to understand not only guest habits, 
patterns, but also within the context of our venues, we're able to kind of cross pollinate. And the real key to our, to our success is kind of really not only defining who our guests are, but figuring out how to appeal and attract them and continue to have them come back. So some different key things that we've done is we've created a club. So within the context of our landmark venues, we just recently launched the landmark club and the landmark club is, is essentially kind of the backbone that kind of bridges all of our locations under one harmonious brand. And it gives us a chance to focus on special events, whether it's a wine dinner, whether it's bringing in a guest chef, whether it's, you know, doing something that's truffle related or, you know, American Wagyu based. It gives us a chance to really kind of create a special platform for those events that kind of continue to appeal to different, you know, different members of, of the landmark family, if you will. And we can kind of sculpt things kind of accordingly. Like, you know, we've got the new venue that we opened in South Orange in your neighborhood. You know, we're looking at a, at a really kind of impressive Oktoberfest event. That's something that really appeals uh, across that community where, you know, we'll utilize, in this case, being a steak to kind of drive some different things with an American Wagyu dinner and, and the different things. But I think for us, it's about making sure that we're harvesting the, the you know, not only our existing client base, but utilizing that as a way to kind of drive more and more, uh, you know, top line. We have options, we have opportunities. Uh, and, you know, most of the time in New Jersey, as you know, it's not something that, you know, there's there's a local loyalty, if you will, but there's also the need to travel and, 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 and I say travel, you know, take a ride, a 20 minute ride to a different community. So you'll leave South Orange and you'll go down to Warren to eat at Stonehouse. And it's about us trying to really capitalize on that, making sure that our guests in each of our locations are understanding and aware that we have a multitude of options. You know, and I think that that's a really impactful way for us to continue to grow, given the sheer number of guests that we see in the calendar year and now having the chance to kind of cross market and, and, and you know, cross pollinate our, our, our audience. Uh, in regards to building new, I think that there's always a need to obviously continue to grow and, and change who we are and what and who we're, we're, we're looking at to obviously to connect with. And I think, again, that goes back to us converting Liberty House into Maddie Rose after 23 years of kind of reinventing the a la carte experience there and, and the look and feel elements and just the sensory of, of, you know, what's coming in the glass and on the plate. And also to an earlier point, what's the lighting, what's the sound, what's, yeah. you know, how does that all come together? But let me, let me just stop you here and just go back and say, okay, mm -hmm. so one of your newest properties is right here in my backyard. So I mm -hmm. live in South Orange, New Jersey. It's just outside of New York city, about a half an hour outside. Um, you opened a place called village hall right in the downtown. We have a cute little downtown area. Um, you guys are right there. It's called Village Hall. Talk to me about how, because that thing was under construction for a long time, and when it finally, Correct. and when it finally opened, talk to me about how you let people know how. I mean, obviously, we saw the landmark hospitality uh, banner outside, and we knew something was being worked on there. Um, but when you finally opened, what was some of what were some of the things you did to raise awareness, to drive traffic in, uh, all of that? So I, I just want to premise this by saying when, when the village hall opened, I wasn't back with the company yet. I had, I had taken a little, a little, uh, brief hiatus, if you will. Okay. Uh, between, you know, and, and I had come back, I, I just recently came back about three months ago. Um, but I can tell you that obviously I was, I was a part of the company in the past when that acquisition was made and was kind of there at the forefront when a lot of the, the plans and the design elements were getting put into motion, uh, for what would ultimately become village hall. Uh, the one thing that I have seen since I've come back, and again, me coming back, I think the, the restaurant at that point was in existence for somewhere between four and six months, uh, which is still very new, very fresh, and obviously a business that's, uh, that's, that's really kind of looking to kind of forge and, and form an identity, not only for, for what it's offering is, but more importantly, who uses it. 
uh, the things that I've seen in, in my return that I think have been impactful towards building, you know, again, just uh, some, some guest count and, and, and ultimately loyalty come down to the fact that South Orange is a very vibrant community, you know, not to mention, obviously, the tie in the Maplewood. The one thing that I looked at when I got there was the number of small businesses that make up that community and how we should be creating kind of that hub for a lot of that idea exchange and socializing. So almost becoming kind of a, I know this sounds a little goofy and corny because they exist, but kind of like a chamber of commerce style, uh, you know, business connected uh, restaurant, because here we are as kind of like taking up a beautiful corner. Uh, we yeah. have a space. Uh, there's a lot of young, engaging, and you know, business owners, and 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 some existing, obviously, long-term kind of you know, kind of kind of entrepreneurial spirits that make up the, the the business community in South Orange. What better way to start kind of galvanizing than again? It's just kind of that word of mouth. You know, being a good neighbor, supporting different school initiatives, supporting different food pantries, and some different you know, some of the different things that kind of make up South Orange and the, the surrounding communities. And show that we're a part of something that not just coming there to kind of, you know, plant our flag in the ground and, and kind of take, you know, covers from other restaurants and, and, and the like, you know, it's important to really kind of engage on a lot of levels. And I think, you know, being supportive of the community that you're servicing first and foremost is super important. And then secondary is really just creating those relationships that really drive, you know, when I walk into the small little kitchen supply shop to pick up a small blade or, you know, uh, whatever, a, a cast iron pan. You know, you have that conversation, you have that dialogue and you've got, you know, you've got peers and contemporaries in the town who actually become great calling cards for, you know, for supporting your business and vice versa. So I, I think there's a lot to that. I think networking is impactful, especially in a new business in a new community. You know, contrary to that would be our existence in Jersey City. You know, we leverage our openings based on our pedigree and our ability to have done business in those communities previously. So we can kind of fill our, our, our businesses just by those connections. But when we go into new markets, it's always, you know, you've got to let people know you're there and you've more importantly got to let them know that you're a good neighbor and you're here to, to support all community initiatives and more importantly, each other. So that's sort of a an organic, I don't want to say street marketing plan, but but it, it's certainly organic. Um, mm -hmm. How did you guys approach, or how do you guys continue to approach things like how you spend your advertising, where you put the, your advertising dollars, where you put them, mm -hmm. how you track and, and measure the those efforts and, and ultimately determine success? Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, listen, I think the, the areas that I can speak to that, because I'm not as dialed in on, the, on like a lot of the I guess like the Google and that that type of thing where we're really looking to kind of place and, and position and, and and grow our brand there. But on a social media standpoint, you know, the one thing that that has become kind of, you know, the the, the easiest way, I guess, to infiltrate a market. I, I don't know if that's the right vernacular, but I'll use that is to really kind of connect and and make sure that we are targeting local influencers. And then more importantly, you know, in, in a synergistic relationship, not only kind of targeting them, tagging them, having them help tell our story, but also really utilizing them as an asset, you know, bringing in influencers to help speak and, and really kind of craft their narrative and more importantly to their audiences, especially when we're talking about local, you know, there, there's a lot, you know, I mean, it used to be, you know, your Facebook groups in the past have now been replaced with, you know, your, your strategic, you know, there, there are individuals who help really tell the story and can fill and help kind of, kind of get you credibility when you don't really have the tenure or the longevity to really have it. So we, we definitely leverage those relationships. Yeah, I love that. Um, we're coming close to the end of our time together, and I want to be respectful mm -hmm. of that. 
What's sort of next for you guys? Uh, and I'll wrap that up in uh, how do you guys think about business development opportunities? Because I've said this, uh, you and I said this before we hit record, is that most of the um, most of the listeners of this show are independent operators or maybe small multi-units, right? So five, you know, less than five or maybe five to ten units. And now you guys are just stretching a little bit beyond where mm-hmm. a lot of the listeners are. So it's a, I guess, a question that talks about, sort of talk to me about your last five to ten years of how you made business decisions and how you think about uh, future development and how are you guys actively doing that now and, and what comes next and how do you how do you make those decisions? Oddly enough, most of what we do, and in many cases, it's funny, there's the, the projects that you pursue and then there are things that kind of organically kind of fall into your, into your lap. We're actually pursuing about five different new developmental options right now. And it's funny, we're pursuing them. And, and one of the things, like I say, just from past experiences here, it's, you know, what we pursue and what ultimately we do tend to be, you know, there, there's, there's some synergies there, but ultimately we, we pivot. We actually have a, a really attractive, a very attractive opportunity in, uh, in, in, a, in a shore town in Monmouth County. Uh, won't give too much insight into that, but it's, it's a pretty aggressive plan. And it, it encompasses about three different a la carte uh, restaurants some strong retail programming, and then ultimately what we do best is our, is our catering aspects. And that's something that we're really investing a lot of time in and trying to develop different concepts that would be appropriate for that uh, specific locale. Uh, in addition, there are some things that are just starting to pop up now. And I think a lot of that is, is you've kind of seen, I don't want to, I hate using the, the COVID words, but I mean, you've started to see kind of now the restabilization of, of the industry. And I think you're starting to see people uh, you know, now's time for, in certain cases, for people to step away and move in different directions uh, from from the businesses that they've developed over the years. And there's some there's some opportunities that have presented themselves recently that would be a little more turnkey. You know, the history of our company has always been: we find a great site, we develop it, and then we operate it. Obviously, you 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 felt that just through the construction fence that was present in South Orange for the years. These are a little bit more turnkey, where we could actually kind of acquire and move in pretty quickly and operate. Uh, so there's some things like that that now we're taking into consideration. I mean, the premise of this company has always been to find, I mean, our name is Landmark. We look for landmark historical properties that we can kind of put a unique spin on and really kind of take and develop and, and, and kind of really kind of curate, you know, amazing programs that kind of speak to the historical relevance of the projects that we pick. So we're looking kind of outside that scope a little bit now, just at some opportunity. So more to follow on that, I guess, uh, you know, as things get closer and we can commence and, and, and get going. Yeah, I love it. It's a word that keeps coming up and up over the course of this uh, conversation is it's not just about pivoting. It's about evolution. It's one of the things that drove me crazy about the pandemic is we kept talking about the pivot. We are we, we have to pivot. We mm-hmm. you know, we, well, we pivoted and no, 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 we, we evolved. And actually, we should have gotten good at that long before the pandemic. We were forced to do mm-hmm. that because we had to. There was no other way to make Correct. revenue, except we used to do this. Now we have to do something else. But um, I hope that uh, I hope that we can have that conversation that restaurants aren't ready-made. They're not pre-built. They don't have to be great and and right the first two months. Um, and certainly I've opened enough restaurants in New York City where they do have to be pretty close to what you think. But but still, that's not even that's not even true. They, they continue to evolve and they become what they're going to become as they serve the market um, generously and, and, and grow with the market, just like you're talking about Jersey City, as that uh, area has mm-hmm. grown up and become more diverse and changed. Um, we have to serve them in, in different ways. And for me, that's what evolution is all about, is that as long as you stay tethered to your people, you say, oh, great, 
how can we continue to serve them in the ways that they need to be served? They used to need this, now they don't need this. They also need this, mm -hmm. or they need this instead. Ultimately, that's how you evolve your business plan. That's how you evolve your business to stay alive and to, to really thrive throughout. That's how I've always thought about it, and um, I've always thought it was crazy, having done so many restaurant openings, this idea that it's got to be, like, perfect from right out of the gate. Like, they don't know our people enough. We don't know the neighborhood enough. We haven't, we haven't, inter we haven't interacted enough to know how, how they want to use it. Yeah, and that's that's always the interesting dilemma, right? You, you like I say, I've always if you want that five years, you want that because at that point you start to st not that's even right. stabilize, but you start that's to right. understand who you are and how that's you right. serve, and and you know that's that's the challenge is getting there. I've always said that when I've consulted on restaurant openings because I've done enough openings to know this, and I say, man, just hold on to it as much as possible because right now you own it. It is what you want it to be, mm -hmm. and the second you open the doors and you give it away, it's no longer what you want it to be. The people will use it in the way they want to use it. They will move the chairs where they want to move them. They will they will move the table where they want to. They will gravitate to the sections of the bar that are most appealing. You can try to arrange that, but ultimately, when you open, you give it away, and it's no longer yours, and then you go from um, this place of sort of creation. We're going to create this space and what we want it to be, and then you switch into, and it sounds odd to say, but you switch into this role of service. Then it's like, okay, what can I do for you? How can I help you in the ways that you mm -hmm. want to be here in this space? Ultimately, those that do that well end up succeeding because people want to go back to the places where they're taken care of, where the space takes care of them, Absolutely. where the people take care of them. Correct. Yeah, that's how I view it. It's how I've uh, viewed it for a long time. Um, all right, I got five questions. I ask everybody who's... Uh, on the show, are you game for these five questions? Absolutely. They're super easy. All right, first question. Uh, what's the last great meal you had? Oof, Jesus, I thought these were gonna be easier. Only kidding. Come on. Uh, last great meal I had. All right, so I mean, this is a loaded question, but I'm gonna stick to this because I, I kind of feel strongly about it. And I've been there multiple times, but the one place that I, I kind of look forward to and like kind of can't wait for my next visit is Raza in Jersey City. Uh, such a simple, 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 simple item like pizza is, is just done on such an elevated cerebral way that I just, I mean, like I say, uh, that's my spot and, and I love going there and I love eating there. Okay. So I got to ask you follow up. So I'll, I'll give a little uh, context here for, again, people in, uh, the listeners who are spread all across the country or all over the world. Uh, Raza is a pizza shop. It's in Jersey City. It uh, was voted, I don't know what this, eight, eight years ago at this point. It was voted by mm -hmm. the New York Times food critic as the best pizza in New York uh, and maybe sacrilegious that it's not in New York. So I'm going to ask you, is it the best mm -hmm. pizza in New York? It is. Yeah, I, I can say that with confidence. I mean, you know, Una Pizza is amazing, but I still am a partial to, to Raza. Great. Um, okay. And I know that both of them were very uh, recently mentioned, I think is like number one, obviously Una in the world. And I think Raza was number nine on a, on a recent list that came out. So yeah, I, I, I'm partial to Raza. And I say that, you know, with all respect to Anthony and his work at Una. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Awesome. I love it. Uh, okay. Number two, what's the last great ho hospitality touch you've had? That's, uh, that's, that's interesting. I will say it probably had less to do with being in a restaurant and more to do with being in a hotel. Um, I'm seeing, you know, the face of, of the hotel industry has changed. And I guess if there's a third leg to the stool with Landmark's uh, growth and development, it comes from now we are actually into that 
kind of small luxury hotel capacity, but I'll leave that there. Uh, oddly enough, I, I think the anticipation of, of guest arrival, um, I find that hospitality is more prevalent now in, in hotels that are trying to really recapture a market and just the interesting offerings they have. So I, I look at that more, um, more so than, than even, you know, a restaurant space. I, I'd say that, you know, most recently I was down in Atlanta about a year ago and, uh, yeah, the, the hotel hotels I, I find are a little bit more engaging and, and more in line with guest experience. You know, it's funny is that the friends that I have in, uh, in the hotel side of the business, they call that romancing the sale and mm. they think really deeply. So in the restaurants, we think really deeply about steps of service and they think really deeply about customer journey, meaning where did they first learn about us? Where did they go to discover more about us? Uh, where did they go to ultimately book and what helped them book? And then what happens between the moment they book and the moment they walk through the front door and they call that time period this opportunity to romance the sale? That if we do it right, we can reach out and say, hey, we know you're coming for five days. You know, can we help you set up reservations? Hey, is there any excursions? Mm -hmm. Hey, do you have a, do you have tea times available? Hey, are you hosting, uh, are you hosting clients? Or how can we help you that between excursions, uh, reservations, you know, spa treatments, tea times, all this stuff to make your, uh, your visit the best possible visit it can be that number one, it's just great hospitality. And the best part is mm -hmm. that it aligns with our business goals, which are that we, find ways to drive more revenue before they even walk in. And then the people that I know in hospitality really think deeply about um, the after, right? That mm -hmm. uh, once you've made an impression, hopefully you've done everything right within the meal, within the stay, that then how do we keep in touch with them after, the day after, the week after, the month after, the year after, because they're going to want to go away again, whether it's here or somewhere else in the world. And they know our flag. Why shouldn't they... Uh, why they shouldn't they use our flag? I find it's a real mm -hmm. failure on the part of the restaurants that we don't think about that before and the after. So I love that you brought that up. Yeah, no, and it's funny. I think a lot of that comes down to, again, I think the, the, the human capital aspect and the lack thereof for the last few years, I think has kind of really resonated and I hate to say it into, into our dining platform and days where like a lot of the details and making sure, you know, you knew who was in your dining room and what expectations and preferences were, you know, a lot of that stuff has, has unfortunately gone away just based on, you know, in many cases, not having the team in place to do it where the hotels have a little bit more in the way of, uh, you know, of, of, of some staff and opportunity that they can actually still support that. You know what? I would push back on that because they have really suffered as well with people. What they have, okay. what they have isn't the infrastructure. They have the CRM software that mm. allows them to do this. They have the automations. They have things Fair. like that. They've just made it um, a priority for them. The same stuff Fair. is available for us that where there's a will, there's a way. They know... That okay, two hundred bucks a night, great. We got the guys for five nights. That's a thousand bucks. But what we need mm -hmm. for them is to dine in the restaurant. What we need for them is to book the excursions with us. What we need for them is to book the next eight stays over the next five years. That they know they're shopping for the the loyalty, and the way to get loyalty is to show them that we made this the best possible way. So perhaps they've got more resources available to them. But I really think it's uh, it's more about uh, where there's a where, where there's a will, there's a way, and we have not shown the will for it. Um, and I think over the next five to 10 years, it's going to be absolutely required. So 
uh, as the big as the big restaurants do it, as the the bigger chains and groups do it, and all of that. Um, I got a third question for you because um, I want to make sure we get these in. Avagini came down mm-hmm. and could grant you one wish as it relates to our industry. You only get one wish. What would you wish for? Hmm. Oh wow! One wish. Uh, right now I'd have to say a stabilization on supply chain. Perfect. I think, uh, w- one of the bigger challenges recently, and it's no mystery is just the volatility of, of the market and pricing and availability. Yep. Great. I love that. That could be a whole other episode. Um, mm. <laughs> fourth question. Uh, what would you tell someone who's about to open their very first restaurant? Good luck. No. <laughs> and, and not sarcastically. Um, you know, I, listen, I mean, there's, easy. And when I say luck, it's important to kind of emphasize on that word. And that's why I said it, you know, there is an element of luck. You, you put a lot of, you put a lot of cognitive, you put a lot of like, there's a, it's a cerebral process opening a restaurant and there's so many decisions that are so both overthought and some that just come so at, you know, natural and easy. But I think at the end of the day, there is an element of luck that has to kind of play into everyone's success. And that's why I say it, it wasn't necessarily from a sarcastic standpoint. It was, there's some truth to that. There is an element of luck and I think everyone is deserving of it. Yeah, I love that. All right, last question. Um, I want you to tell me about the future of restaurants. I want you to look five years down the line and tell me what's coming that other people may not see coming. I don't know if they don't see it coming, but I think there's going to be an incredible amount of, of, of automation. And I, and a big part of that, I think, is due to the fact that, you know, I don't think there's going to be uh, – I don't think there'll be fewer operations uh, in the future. I think the overall goal, I think, as an industry is we have to start looking at the people who actually uh, who, who work in our industry. And I think, you know, uh, better living wage, healthcare, retirement structure, the, the items and the, the calls that aren't necessarily 100 percent present, especially with smaller uh, operators and, and by no fault of their own. I mean, we said earlier, I mean, what flows through as profit isn't isn't a lot. So when you start to factor in these other things, I do think that ultimately there will be more automation. And I'm not saying to take away from the number of people, but I do think to improve consistencies and just overall operating uh, savvy, meaning you're right, you know, the CRM at the hotel, they they have those robust systems. I think for us, there needs to be a little bit more in the way of technology that's introduced in small businesses. And I think that will actually come at at not the cost of human capital, but it'll come at the benefit of guest experience. So I, I think automation and just overall. I, I, I could not, I could not agree more. I think the, uh, I've gone on record on this show saying that I think there's a new, a new level of dining that we haven't had before. So if there's fast, ca- if there's quick service and fast casual, and then there's full service, casual dining. I think there's something in between fast, casual mm-hmm. and full service. I think this bar taco model, something like that, that they've, mm-hmm. where the, you, you know, you sit at the table, you still have a server, you just do all the ordering yourself, you pay yourself and everything, but they're there to answer questions and guide you through and bring you stuff. So you sort of have a team of runners and everything. I think it's the only way forward, especially as mm-hmm. I've got a lot of clients out in California, as you watch, they got no tip credit and the minimum wage for the state is 1630. Mm-hmm. And next year there's a proposed minimum wage for fast food for $20 an hour, which guess what? That basically puts our minimum wage for the restaurant industry at about $20 an hour. So the fact that every bartender, every busser, every barista, every waiter is making 20 bucks an hour plus tips, I think is just unrealistic. It's unsustainable. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I think that I think the appetite to maintain the tip credit uh, nationwide is uh, disappearing. I think in the next five or 10 years, that's going to go. And all of that just feeds into your answer. I think automation by necessity, uh, both in front of house mm-hmm. and back of house, back house. Um, all of that. It, absolutely. Um, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Appreciate well, you sharing you. your insights. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, where can we send people to learn more about you, Landmark, everything you guys are up to? So our websites are all are up to, to date and obviously our social campaigns where we have uh, we have a Instagram page for all of our restaurants and, and catering venues. Uh, yeah. And come visit us in New Jersey or PA. Great. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. We're going to include all of those links in the show notes. So no need to worry for if you're listening here. Yeah, all of that will be there. Uh, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. You as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Anthony for taking time out of his day to sit and chat with me. Hope you got a lot out of this interview. All those links are in the show notes if you want to go and check out some of these restaurants. Finally, I just want to remind you, if you uh, struggle to generate consistent, predictable 20% profits, then please set up a call with me or someone from my team. We run this mastermind. Currently, we've got nearly 100 people uh, enrolled in the program spread across three different groups. The program works. The impact we're making works. The way to get started is to set up a call restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule it's absolutely free and i look forward to hearing from you as always i appreciate you guys being here and i will see you next time